Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voison inviting you to listen to our latest podcast episode, number 931, with author Roger Walsh about his book entitled Essential Spirituality, The Seven Central Practices to Awaken Heart and Mind. Roger also has a new podcast out entitled Deep Transformation Podcast, and I encourage everybody to go there. This podcast is brought to you by Stephen S. Hoffman, author of a new book entitled The Five Forces That Change Everything, How Technology is Shaping Our Future. If you want to know more about Stephen S. Hoffman, his programs, events, and new book, please visit his website at www.founderspace.com. That's www.founderspace.com. And now for a featured podcast, please listen to my engaging interview with Roger Walsh about his book entitled Essential Spirituality, The Seven Central Practices to Awaken Heart and Mind. And also don't forget to take a listen to his new podcast entitled Deep Transformation Podcast. Happy listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Boyson, the host of Inside Personal Growth. And joining me from Mill Valley is Roger Walsh, and Roger is a returning guest. He was on the show, I say, many moons ago, and the reason I say that is um, he was speaking about his book uh, on The Course in Miracles that he had authored. Um, Roger, good day to you. How are you doing? Greg, hello. Thank you so much for the chance to dialogue with you again. What a delight. Well, it's always a pleasure speaking with you because it centers me, and I hope it centers all the rest of my audience as well. Um, Today, we're going to be talking about two things. Um, The first one I want to mention, and then we'll put a link into our blog for that, is a new podcast that Roger does called Deep Transformation Podcast, and that's deep, T-R-A-N-S-F-O-R-M-A-T-I-O-N dot I-O. And there you will learn more about Roger and his partner, John Dupre. Is Dupre right? Dupuy. Dupuy. Uh, Nice Frenchman. Um, (laughs) (laughs) We have an Aussie and a Frenchman. Um, So they are doing a podcast together now, and I do want to encourage my listeners to go to that. Uh, Deep Transformation, tagline, Self, Society, Spirit. Um, Roger, let me tell my guests who are listening a little bit about you, Um, and this you will find up at the Deep Transformation website. Roger's day jobs include being a University of California professor and that's at UC Irvine, uh, in psychiatry, philosophy, anthropology, and religious studies, as well as a writer and researchers. His work has been um, received over 20 national and international awards. He is also a meditation student, teacher, and researcher, a Tibetan Buddhist lama, and was formerly a circus acrobat, I didn't know that, and a world record high diver, and spectacularly unsuccessful stand-up comedian. Well, you've had a lot of different things that you've done in your career, Roger. Yeah, a lot of incarnations in this lifetime. (laughs) Yeah. 
So it, but it's a pleasure having you back on again to be with myself and the guests. Um, we really did enjoy that last podcast, and it's been way too long ago. But we're going to be speaking not about just the podcast show that he does, but a book that he wrote quite some time ago. We're actually saying this book was in 1999. But as I say here, um, spirituality and the wisdom that comes from that, it's timeless. So there is no, you know, you don't have to worry about these books, what year they were done. You can pick them up almost any year, any time and read them. So we're going to put a link to this book, to Roger's book on Amazon, because I've formulated my questions for Roger as that and the dialogue for this. You know, Roger, even though it is 1999, long time ago that you wrote that, and I said the good news for listeners is that the book is about ageless wisdom, and it never dates itself. None of the spiritual material usually does. Why did you choose to write the book, and what do you hope the reader is going to gain insight into a result of reading, and I think more importantly, practicing what you speak about to awaken the heart? There is so much. I mean, it's very rich, the whole book. Well, thank you very much, Greg. And there are two questions in there. Why did I write it and what am I hoping for for readers? And I came to write it out of my own uh, direct spiritual quest. I was uh, I was a hardcore materialist. I was a scientist. I had an MD, a PhD, <laughs> etc. Uh, I worshipped at the altar of science. And it, when I came to California, it was a great shock to gradually be exposed to alternative ways of thinking, uh, to contemplative traditions, to psychological growth work. And I dove very deeply into those and tried to make sense of them and found them very rich and very valuable. But uh, then I became, then I started to look at, well, here are all these contemplative traditions, meditation, yoga, mantra recitation, etc. I'm doing them, they seem to be working, but how could that possibly be if they're relics of uh, primitive thinking, as I assumed? <laughs> and and it, there was literally one moment as I was walking across the living room floor when I realized that behind the conventional religious institutions with their myths and their dogmas and their rituals were much less well-known esoteric contemplative disciplines for training the heart and mind to cultivate the same qualities and virtues that the founders and saints and sages of each tradition had realized. And I realized there was a, we could almost call it a contemplative technology. And then I became really fascinated. Well, we are living in this extraordinary time. It's very, it's very easy for us to, for in the United States, and particularly for those of us in California, to forget what a rare time this is when we can we have access for the first time in human history to all the world's religions and spiritual traditions and philosophies. And to forget that for most of human history, if you studied another religion or another meditation practice, you could end up on a funeral pyre or a crucifix. So I became intrigued. Well, what do these have in common? And I, I kept asking myself, well, okay, what are the greatest minds in human history said are the qualities of heart and mind that we need to develop in order to live as fully and well and beneficially as possible? And what do they say about how to do it? And over time, I 
gradually began to see that see the different commonalities across cultures and traditions and wisdom traditions. And the first clue was given to me by Ramdas, the great uh, former Harvard professor who became Ramdas and uh, was a pioneer for many of us in spirituality. And he said, well, all these traditions have in common, they have an ethical training and they cultivate wisdom and uh, and service. And <clears throat> No wisdom, 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 ethics, and yeah. Anyway, three things, and that kind of resonated for me. And then gradually over the years, I began to realize, well, actually, there are more. For example, every contemplative tradition emphasizes the importance of emotional transformation. We have to relinquish anger, jealousy, fear to make room for love and compassion and joy, and. The power, he has attentional training, the capacity to develop a stable, calm, clear mind. You need that in order to be able to do these practices. They emphasize perceptual clarity, seeing things as they really are, disentangling ourselves from our delusions and illusions so we can really see clearly. And they, and they emphasize, emphasize the cult of a shifting our motivation from more egocentric to world centric from being compelled and and controlled by our cravings and fears to being free to move towards self actualization towards self transcendence and finally towards selfless service so gradually you know, all these a, fell together so that that's the end of my that, <laughs> well that is that is the essence of the book for certain and you know Today, as I was out, it's a we're we're taping this show on Good Friday, and I was asking my wife about Good Friday, and we were talking about um, Jesus Christ, and then we were talking about the resurrection, and it was really about um, removing fear because there wasn't, uh, there is no death. And, you know, the message is really about that, you know, and I found it fascinating that you and I reconnect on a day where um, many Christians are thinking about the resurrection, the ability to um, become new again. Um, and at that time, uh, reincarnation, while talked about, wasn't, you know, the state of the day, right? But yet all these other religions uh, did have that. And you speak about two crucial terms. And we talked about this when we did the pre-interview. Um, I said, I'm not super religious, I'm spiritual. Um, what in your estimation is the difference between spirituality and religion? Okay, well, those are two... Um two of the most widely used terms in our, in our worlds. Mm -hmm. And of course, different people have their own spin. But the way I think of, of it is that spirituality is concerned with de direct experience and the practices which cultivate it. Religion is, the term is more often associated with the organizations and beliefs and uh, general practices that flow out of uh, an individual group's experience and become crystallized into in institutional forms and disciplines. So that's the way I differentiate them. Well, that's good because, you know, it, some people you hear them say, I'm religious. And you'll hear other people say, I'm spiritual. <laughs> and 
I think, you know, your definition helps to see the outward expression versus um, when I think of religion, I've said this many times, I think it was um, uh, Ken Wilber that was on the show and he wrote a book about religion, the, the kind of the fall of religion. Um, and this has been a while ago. Um, but the statement I've made many times is religions have done more to divide society and individuals than they have to unite. This is a Greg Voison comment, but <laughs> spirituality has done more to bring people together, um, in, in my humble opinion, um, because there's been so much strife and so much fighting um, from a religious standpoint. Um, and, and I think that's a challenge. You want to comment on that? Because to me, uh, I, I know it's not one of our questions and it doesn't have to be, but the reality is, is that fundamentally to me, it just seems so challenging that you're, you're, whether it's Judaism or Mormonism or Catholicism or whatever ism it is, it, it has been a challenge to control people, uh, to, to almost control them and to control their minds. Um, and I don't mean that negatively. I think there's a lot that comes out of that. But I'd love to get your take on it because, look, you're somebody who's been studying this most of your life. Well, as of you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll take I'll take a stab. Well, I think you're pointing towards something very important, tragically important, Brick. And if we go back to the distinction between spirituality and religion as spirituality emphasizing direct experience, religion emphasizing interpretation, dogma, institutionalization, uh, and particularly belief, then I think what you're saying becomes understandable. People don't uh, don't uh, fight so much over their direct experience. It's always the interpretations that, that become the source of source of uh, of argumentation. And with religions, we have very set beliefs, and not just any beliefs. They are the big picture beliefs, our understanding of the cosmos and God and our human nature and how we relate to the universe and God, etc. So these are what are called our worldviews, our biggest our encompassing understanding of ourselves and the universe and, and everything that is. And when, when you, when, so our very identity is grounded in and in some ways determined by that kind of uh, world, our worldviews, and when you do, or and that belief system, and the thing that's really important to know is when you don't share someone's belief system, you tend to weaken it. And since everyone identifies with their belief system, that's literally experienced as a death threat. And so people have go to war, and more people have perhaps killed and died over, for example, the phrase "No one comes to the Father but by me." than any right. other statement in human history. Right. And yet he was a man clearly devoted to love and compassion. Totally. And I and I think that's a good summation of that. And um, it is, uh, they asked somebody, a Ukrainian the other day on a talk show, I forget, but they were asking, they were talking to some Ukrainians and the man said he's the Antichrist, that Putin is the Antichrist. Um 
you know, Hitler was the Antichrist. Um, when you look at love and compassion, you're just wondering where it is and it doesn't exist. And that is just my commentary as well, again, but I would, I would agree, uh, with the comments made. Um, you know, you mentioned that the book, Essential Spirituality, is a result of 23 years of research in the practice of the world's spiritual disciplines. Um, but before then, you, Roger Walsh, were agnostic. You had no belief uh, in, in the value or validation of religion of any kind. What are the seven perennial practices that you really speak about and want people to understand as a result of reading this book? Because I think they're, they're like the foundation. They're, they're fundamental. Yeah, they are, Greg. And, and as you asked in the previous question, as I pointed towards this, these were the, the practices that I found that the great sages across cultures and, and, and traditions and centuries had emphasized as the, as the most important practices we can do. And so again, foundational is a foundation in ethics that, that we cannot settle our minds and develop love and compassion and clarity and, and wisdom if our minds are filled with hatred and jealousy and we're lying and stealing for people. So ethical living is foundational. Then there's a shift in motivation, Rele releasing egocentric motivation and growing in motivation, which is more uh, generous, which is more uh, self-actualizing, self-transcending less compulsively driven. And there's emotional transformation, reducing anger, fear, jealousy, cultivating love, compassion, joy, etc. And then there's perceptual clarification, really kind of looking, developing a sensitivity of perception, such as advanced meditators have been found to do with research, seeing very sensitive, increasingly sensitively and clearly. Then there's the cultivation of wisdom, seeing deeply into life, and seeing how best to respond to life. And finally, there's the, there's the practice of selfless service, the, the recognition that we practice not for ourselves alone, but in order to become more effective instruments of service. Service as both a means to awakening and an expression of awakening. Well, you rattled those off pretty quick, and I think my listeners will get it, but the most important thing is, is that uh, we'll put a link for the book because he does have a list of them in the book. And then he goes through and articulates them further. Um, and I think that that's, that these are where, where you were coming from with each one of those and how you boom, 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 went right down the list. It's really important because those are, those are practices. In other words, it's a way that we can enrich and enrich our lives uh, become more loving, become more compassionate, become more understanding. Now, um, you talked about motivation. You also talked about cravings in the book. And somebody texted me, and this is an off the wall, a, a very interesting article this morning. And it's a gal that's been on my show, uh, April Ren Rennie, who lost both of her parents in a car accident at the age of 20. 
And she wrote a really interesting book called Flux, The Eight Superpowers to Thrive in Constant Change. And the article, Roger, was about running from oneself. That in today's world, we have this sense that we're we're running, we're always on. Now, in the kind of contemplative practices, Buddhist practices, Eastern philosophy, it's about slowing down and and meditating and uh, being more intentional and being more mindful. If you were to comment about the current state of our world as you see it, Roger Walsh sees it, um, from your perspective, what advice might you give people who find themselves running from themselves? Yeah, and uh, gosh, there's so much in what you, you said, Greg, and and the running both from ourselves and towards the toys and trinkets that the, the world right. offers. Correct, the uh, materialism. Yeah. yeah, so there's both a running from and a running towards, and both of them are crucially important and and have a, can ha- easily have a compulsive quality. So we run from that which we're unwilling to look look at. Yet it's true, it's critically important to know two vitally important things about the way the mind works. One is whatever you're unwilling to experience in yourself, whatever you're unwilling to experience in the mind, sticks around until you are willing to experience it, first principle. Second one, whatever you're unwilling to experience runs your life. Those are two very, very powerful things. So if we're running running and keeping very busy and, and tranquilizing ourselves with trivia in order to avoid facing our inner experience, we are, we are going to be fleeing that indefinitely because it will stay there until we look at it. But the good news is that when we start to start to open to our experience and that within us which we have feared, we find that awareness in and of itself is curative. That when our emotional difficulties, our traumas, our <clears throat> intense emotions, <clears throat> uh, the things we're fearful and shameful about, when they're brought into the healing light of awareness, they release and unravel and their energy becomes freely available to us. So they, they, they offer us gifts even as uh, after we've been willing to look at them. So I think that's one thing I would say about. I think one of those is, uh, you know, when you talk about cravings and you spoke with me on the pre-interview that some research you were doing, um, that it again in the Eastern philosophy, it's the attachment to the attachment to something. Um, we all know, I mean, logically, we're not taking any of our possessions with us. Um, you know, I mean, a lot of people probably want to be buried with their Tesla, uh, but it isn't going to happen. So uh, speak with speak with us, if you would, about the the non-attachment and how that can help people overcome this challenge. Yeah. And uh, of course, uh, you mentioned Eastern philosophies and this idea of the importance of attachment or craving is most succinctly articulated in Buddhism where it's the second of the four noble truths, the first noble truth being that there, in, an, in an any unenlightened life, there is necessarily suffering. And the second noble truth gives a diagnosis 
the cause of that suffering is craving. And the third noble truth gives the treat gives the treatment or antidote. It's like the way out of suffering to relieve su- relieve suffering is to release craving. And the fourth noble truth is a recipe for how to do that. Eight ways of doing that. And so the the idea is that craving that is and its mirror image, which is aversion or fear or anger, put, tr- craving tries to grasp something. It says, I must have this in order to be happy. Its mirror image, aversion, says, I must not have that in order to be happy. And, of course, there can be no peace and equanimity as long as we're slave to those, twi- those twin drives. So the, um, the idea behind many traditions understanding of craving is that this is a very powerful uh, dynamic built into our human nature. And yet it is possible to release and grow beyond it and come, come to a life of, of equi- more, far greater peace and equanimity by, by gradually unraveling this. And the unraveling exercises can be, for example, craving simply to be aware of it, to notice how we feel. And we notice we actually don't feel so good when we're craving. So just that recognition, the willing to actually experience it. This gets back to your previous point, Craig, about fleeing from ourselves. One of the things we flee from is directly experiencing what it's like to crave. As long as we don't directly experience it, we don't realize how destructive it is and we keep feeding it. So that's just one beginning way in. Well, you know, I told you that uh, I had read the introduction to a book um, on psychedelics that, that you had written, and you've obviously done a lot of research. And, you know, one of the things I look at is the subconscious mind and the conscious mind, and this is a open-ended question for you. Um, I currently um, see a gentleman by the name of Dr. Steve Berman, B-E-R-M-A-N, and uh, Steve was an emergency room doctor for 20 years, but uses hypnosis to help his patients overcome the challenges that they're dealing with uh, in the emergency room and if they're going under surgery. So I've been hypnotized many times by Steve and to actually um, realize how strong the subconscious mind is. Now, there's many ways to get at this, but because um, this mammalian brain of ours always wants to default back to certain ways in which we do it. <laughs> I'm, I'm asking you this question, and I know this is roundabout, but between all these practices, meditation and yoga and, um, ITP, which George Leonard used and, um, uh, psychedelics, um, and all of this, with the intent being of everything we talk at to slow down, observe, and release something that we constantly keep defaulting back to, a craving, okay? Whatever that might be, whether we have a sexual crave or a gambling addiction or a spending addiction, whatever it might be. What would you say... And what have you found in all the research you've done that seems to have or could have a sustainable effect on um, unhinging 
that what seems to be just such a strong, powerful mammalian kind of way in which we work. Yeah, yeah. Well, yes, let's acknowledge first off that uh, the craving is incredibly powerful and it's part of our survival uh, uh, machinery. And and it's possible to uh, attenuate it and even for advanced people to release it. Um, you know, you're pointing to, uh, let me generalize the question, Greg, because you're pointing at something very important. What are, you know, what are the kind of most strategic uh, practices we can do for working with a variety of issues. And, you know, there's a, I spent uh, a lot of years uh, studying and reflecting and researching and uh, before I wrote that book, Essential Spirituality, The Seven Central Practices. And as I looked across the world's contemplative traditions and at what the world's wisest people had said about how to come to the fullness of our potential as human beings. The thing that surprised me most was that every single tradition said that for every single one of these seven qualities and virtues of heart and mind, they all said, if you want to develop these qualities, hang out with people who have them. Every one of them agreed that the power of relationship and community was so powerful that if we hung out with people who have these virtues, with people who are loving, who are generous, who are ethical, who are not driven by craving, we pick these up by osmosis because, and we know this now from contemporary neuroscience. So there's a whole field of so-called social neuroscience. We are built neurologically like tuning forks. We resonate with one another. And not only, uh, not only, ways of being and habits, but also states of mind, states of consciousness are transmitted. And wisdom traditions have known this for millennia. They talk about the power of transmission from a teacher, but it's not just teachers. It's our friends, it's our relatives, it's the people we hang out with. And there's a saying now in the contemporary research community, watch out who you hang out with, because you'll become like them and look like them. We even look begin to look like the people we hang out with, because if our friend's cousin gains some weight, we probably will. <laughs> and if we hang out with people who are happy, our faces muscles will grow so as we tend to smile more. I mean, the power of community and relationship is extraordinarily powerful. And these contemplative traditions and these sages recognized hundreds and thousands of years ago. And so for there's one... A, there, sorry, there, not to interrupt, but... The, you just came back from a month-long meditation retreat in community. And, you know, COVID has done much to disrupt the ability to have us do these things. But I remember when I was with Joel and Michelle Levy on the Orcas Islands meditating that the community that was formed was so strong and the elixir that gets created as a result of the practices um, is, is a, I mean, if you want to talk about a craving, it's a it's a huge craving, but a craving for peace, love, tranquility, um, and so on. And it is because once you get there, it's like you can't have enough. And then when you come back, in my case, to the mainland on the boat and you see what's happening, you go, oh, my God, I live in this. Um, you know, and you're saying, well, which is the real world, right? It's kind of like 
people say, well, you're back in the real world. And I go, well, no, maybe the Orcas Islands and the meditation retreat was the real world. <laughs> but if you talk to anybody that goes on a meditation retreat afterwards, the kind of the shock of just coming back out of it again is interesting. Any comment on that? Because I've talked to so many people that have had the same experience. They say, oh my gosh, that was wonderful for a week or two weeks or a month or whatever. And then now I'm back here again and I see the rat in the hamster wheel. <laughs> yeah, well, I think you said it be beautifully, Greg. We become immersed in our, li in our lives. We've become hypnotized by the by the conventional world, world and its understanding. We become hit by everything from advertising to the news. And we we become habituated. We just assume this is the way it is. We go into a, a retreat. We detox effectively, psychological, spiritual detox. We come back and realize, oh my goodness, this is what I and we have been lost into. And so we are able to see it with fresh, more perceptive, clearer, quieter, calmer eyes. Yeah. We recognize. Well, your perception certainly changes. And at one point in the book, you said that's the best thing that could happen is your awareness and perception about it changes. And you said, you state that to know happiness and bliss, that we need to change our motivations. And I'll raise a question up for you about the word motivation versus inspiration. Um, you know, I've had many debates with people about that, extrinsic, intrinsic. Uh, maybe we can talk about that here. This means reducing cravings for those things that we do not bring true ha or do not bring true happiness and redirecting desires to those that do. That's really key. If I was going to underline anything, redirecting to those that do. Um, that's easier said than done. What practices can help us change those motives in your estimation? Because this is a habitual habit. We've got to change a habit. We've got to change almost like a reflux and reflex. It's just like, boom, but you know, it's like Pavlov's dog. Ring the bell. Bing. Here we go. <laughs> yeah. And I'm so glad you've emphasized several times, Greg, that these are all practices. They're not something for most, but we just make a decision about it. Although making decision can be very important and foundational for, for further change. But yes, these are practices. So for redirecting motivation, uh, there's a series. And first, the first thing comes with, with, uh, uh, exposure to different ideas about what really matters in life. Cause we are drawn to what really matters. And so the first step is just knowing there are poss other possibilities to see people dedicating their lives to, for example, learning and growth and, and becoming clear and waking up and serving. So, so first off, being exposed to different ideas. Second, coming back to that theme again, hanging out with people who have those, have those different motives. Third, exactly what you mentioned, beginning to turn attention in and look for our own inspiration, not what other people tell us, not what the advertisers tell us we should desire, but what really calls us, what inspires us, what energizes, empowers and directs us. So we come then to respond to our own calling. And that's a very, very crucial shift. 
Yeah, that is a crucial shift. And and we you have a part in the book that you speak about, you know, when you're not following that, you can have a lot of anxiety and you can have a lot of anger and you can have a lot of frustration. And in your chapter on the gift of love, you speak that emotions rule our lives, that the feelings we repeatedly invite into our minds eventually seduce and dominate our minds. You didn't state that one emotion has long been praised as supreme by the great religions, and that is love. What do you recommend to access love in our lives? And does this start with a big dose of self-love? Hmm. Yeah, two, two important qu- questions then, how to cultivate love. And sec- second is start with self-love. And, and let's just step back for a moment and talk about the very nature of love, because, because our culture's understanding of love is very constricted and limited. And it really helps. The first step is to have a larger vision of possibility of what love can be. You know, for the most part, our culture has promulgated the Hollywood myth that love can happen if you're with the right person who looks the right way, who says the right things, then you can feel love. So it, it kind of it holds, our culture holds a view as love that kind of, uh, you can have under the right circumstances with the right person, and it kind of descends on you kind of like an attack of epilepsy. And, and, and you're controlled by it, and you can't stop thinking about the person. You break out in sweats, you can't sleep. That's not. That's a description of heroin withdrawal. This is a description of addiction, not of not of pure <laughs> like love, mm-hmm. of 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 a, what the Christians would call agape, the overflowing love for all creation and all people. So first off, we need to recognize there are different kinds of love. There's a love which is based in craving, which is what our culture assumes all love can be. There's love which can be is the love we see between, for example, relatives or parents for children. That's a very generous giving love. There's a love <coughs> between romantic partners, which at its best can be the flowing of eros, not grasping after and possessing, but rather an overflowing eros that is not just not only sexual, certainly sexual, but more than that, inspiring, invigorating for life. And finally, there's what the Christians call agape or unconditional love, which is a love that knows no boundaries or limitations, encompasses all people and even all life. So having that vision is a first step. And then there are individual practices we can work with, which we could go into if you'd like, Rick. Yeah, I think that, you know, what's important here for, I, I would think for my listeners, I feel like I know them a little better. The opposite of love is fear, and much has been written about fear and anger and the long-term effects uh, to our emotions and our physical health. Um, You've outlined 11 exercises in Chapter 12 uh, to reduce fear and anger. What are some of those exercises, not all of them because we don't have time, and that can help our listeners find themselves and being less fearful and less angry, you know, because I, I my sense is, you know, all you got to do is drive down the road anymore and get cut off one more time. And you can see that, you know, there's a lot of frustration and anger or someone that can't wait in line for, you know, the, the next checkout person. 
Um, I, I there are times I sense myself that way, and I'm like, why can't I stay in this peaceful state and just wait? Um, you know, I get it because we are enticed about what's the next thing that we have to do, and so when that to do list gets big, it starts to possess us, and it's really not about living. Yeah, exactly. And uh, uh, again, we could go down many roads here, Greg. You touched on on a lot, but if we think of, for example, fear, uh, fear is you know it's an emotion which runs our lives to varying extents. It's it's one of the things that's uh, feelings that's most uncomfortable. We tend to avoid, and yet one of the things that again is important to know is when we avoid being a when when we avoid directly experiencing our fear, it remains there and it tends to grow and it tends to run our lives. So one of the things that's really valuable to know about fear is if we turn attention to it and actually explore it, what does this actually feel like? We find that as we explore it, it through the healing power of awareness, it begins to diminish and release. And in fact, one of the standard psychotherapeutic treatments for fear is simply to have people remain in a situation that's fearful for them for a period of several minutes. Because usually what happens, as soon as we possibly experience fear, we're trying to get out of that situation. But if we stay there, if we and if we just experience the fear, then it only takes literally a couple of minutes for us to realize, oh, it's beginning to decrease. If we don't run from it, if we run from it, we ex exacerbate it. If we stay with it, it diminishes. That's a crucial life lesson. That well, is that is really great wisdom. You know, I know one of the practices is like a Tonglen meditation where you're he doing healing work for the rest of the world. And, you know, when I've done that, I can really feel it and your body feels it. And then to breathe it back out again. Um I think that that's, I think in kind of wrapping this up, Roger, what I'd like you to do, because there's the book, which we're going to put a link to, and there's a po the podcast, which Roger has, Deep Transformation, which we're going to put a link to. Um, but I'd like to wrap this up with, you know, your essentials of spirituality will certainly awaken the heart of all readers that commit to your practices. And I'm going to underscore commit to the practices. This isn't a book you just read. This is a book you contemplate. This is a book that you practice, you you work on. There's work you have to do. If you were to leave the listeners with three takeaways that they could really make an impact now, you know, as Ram Das says, I, I have this here, I'll show you. I also have a clock. <laughs> <laughs> Be here now. <laughs> Be here <Yep>. now. Um, <laughs> and I have a now clock, which has no hands on it. It's just on the wall. And it has a, uh, an ohm signal that goes back and forth. Uh, what would they be? And why do you believe they're so important to changing their lives? Just three really great takeaways that they could apply. Okay. Well, I would again go back to something we talked about before because it's so important. So many sages have agreed with this. Be careful who you who you choose to hang out with. Choose your friends and companions wisely, and make and ideally see if they embody the qualities you would like to have and strengthen yourself. 
That's number number one. And an analogy of that, be very careful about what, what you put into your mind, for example, with television, because what we put into our minds is even more important than what we put into our bodies. Second principle, and there are going to be two related principles here, ethics. Ethics is crucial for psychological and spiritual well-being and growth. And in our culture, we tend to, tend to think of ethics as kind of a sacrifice or, okay, I'll do what I should do. What we don't appreciate is that ethics, is living ethically is a way of enhancing our well-being and the well-being of everyone we interact with. And the third is generosity and service. Our culture tends to think of generosity and service as self-sacrifice. It's not. It's enlightened self-interest. When we really not, uh, begin to experience what it's like to give, we realize that we, when we give to others, we cultivate feelings such as generosity and joy and love, and they grow in us. And so in, uh, generosity is not self-sacrifice. It's enlightened self-interest. Well, thank you for giving me and our listeners a wonderful 45, 50-minute talk. Um, and an opportunity to glean uh, some of your practices out of essential spirituality. Again, we've been on with Roger Walsh uh, from Mill Valley, California, and you're going to want to go to his podcast show. Um, and we will put a link to that podcast show, but it's called Deep Transformation Podcasts. Um, Roger, namaste to you. Thank you for being on. Thank you for spending some time with me. Greg, thank you very much for this opportunity and thank you for all you do for all of us. Thank you for listening to this podcast on Inside Personal Growth. We appreciate your support. And for more information about new podcasts, please go to InsidePersonalGrowth.com or any of your favorite channels to listen to our podcast. Thanks again and have a wonderful day.